Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of Tailoring in Conversation. In this series, I'll be talking to tailors from all around the globe to gain a better insight into their worlds. My guest for today is Matthew Peluso. Matthew is the founder of Artifacts and the Common Threads podcasts. He brings tailors from different backgrounds together to understand and learn about their perspectives, their differences, and their shared values. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about Matthew's background and some of the challenges, I would say, that we face in our current industry. So let's get started. First of all, Matthew, hello, and thank you for making the time. Uh, it's exciting yeah. for me to be here with you. I think we have a lot of things to discuss and to talk about. And so um, I'll just start with thanking you and, and saying welcome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Reza. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and you know, figure out all the technical issues that can happen when you do something like this. Sure, sure. Matthew, I have the, the, the very first question I ask is, if me and you were 10 and we were friends uh, and we were not recording a podcast or whatsoever, what was it that we were doing right now? Where are we in the world? We are on a playground somewhere. and <laughs> You're from <laughs> Iran. <laughs> Went to high school in, I don't know, Finland or something. And now you live in London. And, and well, I have a let's, similar sort of... Well, let's, 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 let's say we're where, where in the same street as you grew up. If I was uh, the neighbor, okay. uh, you, you know, yeah. And we're 10 years old. If we're 10 years old, we're outside climbing trees, um, digging in dirt, running around the house and exploring things and lifting up stones and uh, trying to build forts. And oh, yeah. Things like that. Yeah. Very That's nice. Probably is, what I would, is, That's is, what I would be doing. Maybe you would be there, but just not participating. I'm not sure. But what, what was what it, did, Would we have a big, uh, big gang of friends to, to hang out with, or was it just me and you? You and I would probably just hang out, and then other people would join at certain points in time but then they would leave. So it wouldn't be so much of a big gang, but from time to time, we'd probably have to get togethers that we'd organize and <laughs> as 10 year olds. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's important to get organized when you're 10, you see, um, would, would, would there be any signs around us that we would probably grow into the tailoring uh, world where we are today is that w would we see photos of family members who were friends who were tailors or friends who were yeah. uh, tailors are we just talking about me now not not yes your story okay yes um yeah you would you wouldn't necessarily see them hanging in the house but you would and i say you i would go to perhaps family reunions uh, I have a very large extended family, and so there's a large age range of people, and so you might, I might be speaking with an uncle who's, you know, 15 years older than my father, who knew my great-grandfather, who knew this, who knew that, and who was actually there and, and did it. Uh, and so my uh, great-grandfather was a tailor, and then my grandfather after him, um, my great-grandfather immigrated from Italy in the early 1900s and then my grandfather opened a menswear store uh in the 1940s i think i believe just before world war ii and so 
my grandfather, you would see pictures of him around the house. He's, you know, close enough, close enough to my immediate family. And I forget there was another question that you asked. Was there anything else that would give us a clue as to what I would be going into? At 10 years old, there wouldn't be. I don't think so. I don't think you'd be able to tell. I think it's difficult to tell what any 10-year-old is going to be when they grow up because, you know, they have their yes. whole life in front of them. Even now, I have my whole life in front of them or in front of me, and, and so do you. Um, I think once I got into high school, you could definitely see a tendency uh, because mm-hmm. I I had a, uh, an eye and a desire to pursue quality and the best of everything. And that overflowed into clothes as well. And my desire to dress well and to present myself well um, to my peers and to, and to those teaching me. And so I think at that point, I think at that point, people probably would have seen a tendency to go into fashion design or some sort of fashion route. But the notion of a tailor, I think, was completely out of the question because the idea, the complete idea of a tailor doesn't exist in the United States um, as you and I know it. So that wouldn't have been in the the picture. People wouldn't have said, oh, you're going to be a tailor. It, It just didn't make sense to anybody. Mm. Would you say that the aesthetic interest became before the uh, the technical interest, or was it the other way around, or maybe none of them? Uh, well, looking back, all those years ago, looking back, <laughs> uh, it was the aesthetic that preceded the uh, the technical interest. So what actually happened was my first sort of dive into uh, sewing and technical, doing anything technical with cloth was making ties and bow ties and so Mm -hmm. aesthetically i was attracted to dressing well and like i said earlier presenting myself well and uh so that drove me to further my knowledge in the technical so i figured out how to make ties and i made ties because i wanted to look good and i thought it was cool to make them and i also Mm. thought i could sell them and i did Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, he, I have a question. So you say you felt the need to present well. Um, and you, had, you felt that need from quite an early age. Why? What was it? Was it family tradition? Was it peers? Was it your personal instinct? What, what was it exactly? Why would a young man want to present himself well uh, when he can just, you know, put on anything really or not care at all yeah yeah well part of that i think is innate i think everybody there are certain things certain character traits that people have that are pretty much go unchanged um that being said i mean you can change everything about yourself so i i kind of believe in both of those things simultaneously which shouldn't make sense but i think it does and at least for me it works um You're going to have to repeat the question. I completely forgot. Why did you have any interest in presenting yourself aesthetically well? Okay. Yeah. So that was, I I think partially it's because I grew up in more of a traditional family uh, from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest and my father was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, had nuns hitting his knuckles with rulers. 
Um, and then my mother was raised Protestant, um, in, again in the Midwest in Detroit. And so I, I think from those constructs is where that sort of idea of formality and properness came, etiquette came. I mm -hmm. think that's probably where that originated from, at least from an early age. And then at a certain point, I'm sure it, it took on um, its own sort of life, you know. So when I was 10, perhaps you could say I still had that same sort of mindset of being prim and proper. But then as mm -hmm. I grew older, it was less so, be less because of the social construct or religious construct or whatever you want to call it, and more because of my own desire to push that forward and, and to do that personally and make that part of my character, I think. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, when did you really know that, you know, I, I'm going to do this tailoring thing? You know, I, I feel the urge, I feel the need. I probably want yeah. to choose a direction for a career. Um, how, how were you introduced to it? What was your first introduction to tailoring? Um, and how did that develop? So my first introduction to tailoring more officially, so like I said, I made ties, and that was sort of my introduction to the technical side of anything with cloth. Uh, my first int introduction to tailoring was in an alterations shop, a made-to-measure shop uh, near Cleveland, Ohio. And I worked in the tailor shop there. So I one day I remember walking in there and, you know, we're talking about presentation and, and looking nice and all that. And I walked in there all, uh, you know, in a jacket and tie and looking nice and presenting myself. I had my resume and everything there. And presented very well and I was fortunate enough to meet this lady Cheryl who was uh, who was a fashion model and, and ran a, a medium sized fashion brand in New York City in the late 80s and 90s uh, and then she she had since retired and just gotten a sales position at this shop uh, primarily working on commission and that's kind of what she wanted to do uh, and it was a menswear shop and I was so fortunate to meet her. Her name is Cheryl. I was so fortunate to meet her because she looked at me and and believed in me based on how I presented myself. So it was a complete confirmation of what I had thought previously um, mm -hmm. in terms of how you present yourself, not only physically but also in conversation and what you talk about and how you talk about it. Um, so that was a great confirmation of that and and she's been great in pushing me and, and believing in me. And I thought, uh, I really appreciated that. You know, I think that's kind of underrated. And um, so that's sort of, that was my first introduction. So I worked in the tailor shop there. How there old were, were you then? 17, maybe. 17, okay. Yeah, 17. And so that was my first introduction introduction to tailoring, and I worked in the tailor shop and on the sales floor. And in the tailor shop, it's funny to, to think about that tailor shop and tailor shops in Italy, just because there's there's so many similarities, but yet there's a lot of differences. Um, Italian, so there were all there were how many Italians? One, two, at least three Italian people that I worked with who were first-generation immigrants, so they came over from Italy when they were younger and 
changed careers essentially because they learned tailoring one way and came here and then figured out that they just needed to do alterations because they're a little bit younger. I think they're in their mid sixties right now, Mm -hmm. mid sixties, late sixties. And so that generation is a little bit behind. I think some of the, the earlier generation that came over and worked in ready to wear and really revolutionized the ready to wear industry in the United States. So, so they would, you know, they would get jobs at Brooks brothers or, uh, Harshaft and Marks or, you know, big American brands that were industrializing and needed mm-hmm. competent people, competent foremen to run their factories. And so they're a little bit after that, the people, the guys that I initially worked with, uh, one lady, uh, Rosetta was actually trained by nuns in Italy. So they, they'll have, uh, uh, I don't know if it was a school, but she went to this coven. And is it a coven of nuns? No, convent, not a coven. Um, and she learned tailoring there, and they taught her pattern making, and and that was how she learned. Um, and so that was mm-hmm. my first introduction. It was a lot of hemming trousers and um, tapering legs and bringing in waists and thing, things of that nature, you know, basic alterations, nothing nothing crazy and did you like what you were doing because obviously like i if i think about the time that i was doing like you know the small things like oh could you just base this little thing or can you just take this wasting or taper this i found that to be intensely boring now i was at the same time i did develop like my 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 passion for tailoring uh, so weirdly enough, I did enjoy what I was doing, but I found it intensely boring and I couldn't wait to go on to the next stage. What, how was it for you? Uh, how, how did you like enjoy it, it, it or was it? Yeah, for me, it was very similar. I, it, it, it was very similar. It's like when you're doing something for the sake of doing it, it can, it's just super frustrating. And I still do that today i mean there's still things that i do today i'm not you know in italian you say un sarto completo which is like a finished tailor i'm not i'm not un sarto completo unfortunately um and so yeah so those beginning stages are extremely difficult because i think everybody has some sort of a desire to produce value and so when you're doing something for the sake of doing it and you and it's not really laid out very well in front of you either. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to go um, pad lapels for one week or two weeks or three weeks, eight hours a day. And then after, I'm going to move on to this section of the jacket. I'm going to put on the edge tape of the jacket for a certain period of time. And then I'm going to move on. It's not like that at all. And so uh, it's extremely difficult, like you were saying, and boring to do something that in reality has no value you know you're not providing any value to anybody um except in theory yourself if you continue down that road of tailoring and that's kind of a big if i think because of the barriers uh to entry in the trade i mean there's just so many and so yeah i found it tremendously boring um but at the same time tremendously exciting you know i was and maybe it was, uh, I always found it exciting because I was so anxious to get to the next step. I was so, and still I am when I'm in a tailor shop with somebody who's teaching me something. 
I'm so anxious to get done with what I'm doing and to get done with it perfectly so that I can get on to the next step because it's almost like you're trying to capture the moment because if that person mm -hmm. isn't in the right frame of mind many, many times, they'll say, oh, you know, we'll do it tomorrow. And it's like, oh, we're going to do tomorrow. Now we're, I'm going to have to get up, wait for uh, us to turn on the lights, heat up the irons. You know, you might have a client come in and then it gets pushed back to the end of the day. I have to wait tomorrow, you know. So you really want to seize the moment, seize the day. Um, which is also kind of another trend for me because so as a young kid, I had epilepsy. And so people would, or not people, but my immediate family would say, uh, you know, carpe diem, which is seize the day. And that's kind of, so I think about that as well with tailoring and, and that, that probably has some sort of impact in how I try to learn and, and push myself is just really trying to get as much as you can in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult also as I've been saying with tailors, because they're not, you know, there's such a generational gap and you're coming from at it. You're coming at it, coming at the issue from two different sides. Um, the tailor, or, or at least I am, you know, I, I'll speak personally, at least I'm coming at it from a different side, which is how can I learn everything uh, as proficiently as possible and to a high competency level um, quickly, like I want, I want to be competent as quick as possible. Uh, I don't want to make waste time doing this or that, and I, and I want it to be as quick as possible. Uh, but on the other side, um, you have a selling point, uh, and I think this probably came about. I'm not sure when, but maybe in the last. 30 or 40 years and again I'm you know I wasn't around on I wasn't on Savile Row 40 years ago so I would ask somebody who I who I know is, was on Savile Row but the whole I the whole idea of this suit takes x amount of time to finish this suit has x amount of stitches in it this suit has there are all these like numbers and I think that's sort of an old type of marketing that isn't really going to be working on newer generations I don't think mm -hmm. younger generations necessarily care so much about the basic static selling points of this jacket has 10 centimeter lapels this jacket has 5,000 hand stitches in the canvas I don't think that's right. the selling point for for the coming generations okay um, okay let, let, let's 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 be, before you move on let, let's let's unpack yeah. a few things because because you said many things that I'd like to unpack before we continue and and, and uh, so the first thing that, that's very interesting to me, I think this is a question that many people will have, if, if not already. Uh, and one thing you said was that when you are just starting out, for example, uh, and you're just padding a few lapels, you're not creating really any value, right? Now, could you explain to us a little bit more with what you mean by creating value and creating value for who and what you personally define as value? What I wow, that's a pretty okay. So what I personally define as value, um, it's almost I almost kind of think about it. You know, as if somebody's at the end of the day, you can monetarily define value. You can say 
is this worth mm-hmm. whatever X amount of dollars? And you can monetarily uh, define that value. And I like that way, that definition, because it's a little bit more objective. Uh, you can talk about anything, I mean, that a, that a business is doing or that the product provides to the customer. Specifically, when we're talking about tailoring, you can talk about, like I was saying, the amount of stitches that go into it. Oh, this has a, a double-edged stitch all, all the way around. Um, you know, you can say anything that you want about that garment, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter unless the client is exceedingly pleased with the result and comes back. Um, I mean, that's really what matters, I think. I, and and I think that's difficult for tailors to talk about because they're so focused on the details that they can get caught up in them and, and forget about the customer. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they can forget about the customer and forget. And that's also interesting. It's kind of, I might contradict myself here, but it's interesting because sometimes there's so much, the people actually running the tailor shops, so the person who's going to be cutting, at least in Italy, it's more like this, the person who's cutting and meeting with clients, they're extremely focused on the customer, but not necessarily to the benefit of the customer. They're focused on the customer um, to the point where the customer pays and they leave and they're able to work the next day. So they're not, it's, it's a short-term value proposition to the customer is usually what I've seen in Italian tailor shops where it's like, we want the customer to come in, pay for the suit, pick it up, not come back for, for any issues like, oh, there's a, there's a, um, a pulled thread or something and they want it fixed. You know, we want them to get the suit and leave. But a lot of times that comes out in the production. So then you'll see those those people who are running the tailor shops, the cutter, the head guy or whatever you want to call them, pushing production to be faster, to be quicker, and to not let up on the quality. And you're burning, you're burning the candle at both ends um, by doing that, and it's not going to benefit the customer in the long run because – Yes, you you need to be quick and you need to be fast in the work. You need to be efficient, um, and it needs to be high quality work. But you can't push both of them to the max. It it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And I know there's there's some people, and it gets into ego at some point where it's like, I this is the best, and you just have to um, be the quickest and and make the best work, and it has to be perfect. And a lot of times, again, I'm speaking from my own experience in Italy with tailors, and I'm speaking very abstractly, so I apologize for that. Hopefully I can make it a little bit more concrete. Um, But they'll talk about these very generalized ideas with suits. They'll put on uh, a fitting for a client, and they'll they'll wave their hands at, oh, wow, how beautiful is this? And they're so passionate in that moment and they're, they think they're providing so much value to that customer in the moment, and maybe they are, maybe they're not, but it's not really taking an objective view, nor a long-term view, which it needs to be. If you're the person running the tailor shop, um, mm-hmm. it needs to be a long-term view. And so at the end of the day, it really hurts the customer because you have people selling things to them, and it, you have the, the, the owner of the business selling something 
that isn't necessarily objectively perfect, and they're not really willing to be honest with the customer about that, and and, and that's unfortunate. Um, you know, you might have a collar that has a little bit too much uh, ease in it, and so it, it bubbles up around the neck or something. And um, you know, I, I don't think you have to be perfect. And that's again sounds terrible, me saying that. Like, oh, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to make the best suit. That's not really what I'm saying. But as long as you're not trying to sell the customer something that it isn't, I feel like that's going to benefit them in the long run. Um, mm-hmm. And also then you kind of get into well, what is the customer expecting? Who is the customer? And it makes me think about sort of the, the people out there, um, you know, you talk, things like Mr. Porter, Simon Crompton, uh, Permanent Style, Kirby Allison, for example, you've done, I think you, you've had some contact with him. Um, it makes me think about what they're telling their clients and their customers. And it's so important what they're telling their clients and customers. A lot of times they get a bad rap and rightly so, you know, they may be judging, uh, you know, Simon Crompton may give, um, a Savile Row house, Chittleboro and Morgan, for example, that he may say that this is what Chittleboro and Morgan does. Well, maybe that is what they do, but you have your certain body type and you've only got had one suit or two suits made by them. You can't really sum up a tailor shop in one suit. And I think, honestly, I think that's kind of the crux of the, of the issue. Mm -hmm. You can't sum up one, a tailor shop just in the suit or just in the product. It has to be a, a full experience for the customer. And that is really what I think is going to determine the long-term success of that tailor shop. Um, Would you say that kind of uh, with the with the around the value thing? Um, let's take a tailoring company, and they have a specific uh, production line uh, with a specific set of garments, right? When you say you're not creating any value, could you say? Could would it be safe to say that? We're not extracting the full potential of the value that we could make within a tailoring company so that it not only benefits the business owner, the, the tailor who owns the workshop, but also the apprentice who is doing that boring, tedious lapel padding in the first few weeks, but also the client or the potential future client who may be uh, looking at the current work that the tailoring house is producing. And so that there is something, um, some sort of a mismatch between the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes for to, to run a tailoring shop compared to what the outcome is. Is that kind of like what you're saying? We need to be providing value to everybody. I think that's kind of what you're going at, right? Like, are we providing value to both the customer, the owner of the tailor shop, the guy who's cutting the suit, the guy who's making the suit, and the apprentice, right? Yes, be- well, the... the, be- the Exactly, because you said because you said when you're sitting there, you know, and you're just starting out, and it's a bit boring, you know, you have to do a lot of hard work without providing any value. Now, obviously, someone could say, well, yes, as you just mentioned, perhaps you're providing value for yourself because you're you're training yourself to be able to do something in the future. Uh, but from what you're saying and and what I know and what you know, um, my interpretation would also be that. Uh, there is a lot of work going on behind the scenes and people are working really hard to make, let's say, the production of a uh, garment happen. But if we look at it with the perspective that we have, we're not extracting the full potential um, that we could extract 
compared to the amount of work that we're doing. It seems as if we're doing a lot more work, but yeah. not getting a lot more results. Something like that. Would you would you agree with that? Is that kind of like what you meant as well? I, w- I would agree with that to to a certain to a certain point. I think it's the mindset that's taken when it's the mindset that's taken, and it's the mindset of the industry. And I've had this conversation with some people before about thinking about the world of tailoring or or you know, handmade tailoring, whatever you want to call it, custom tailoring, some people call it. Thinking about it as an industry. And if you think about it as an industry, you can't just say, well, this is my tailor shop, and so I'm going to run it how I want to run it. And that's kind of the issue that I think people people have today. So with the apprentice or the person who's learning, that person is the future of the business. That person could buy your business. Um, it's important to to treat those people with respect and to grow them consciously to say, look, I'm going to invest in you and I want to grow you into a competent person and get them to stay and and hope that they stay and really want to keep them in your tailor shop. The idea shouldn't be to have workers. Again, like in in Italian, people talk about lavoranti, which means workers. They say, oh, I need another laborante. I, and I kind of cringe at that term. You know, you need, you need to have employees who are going to contribute to a team who are going to take your brand to the next level because it's not just about the product. I think we talk so much about the product and what it is. Again, like I was saying earlier, it's about your brand at the end of the day. Um, there are so many tailor shops that do they make a terrible product and yet they have a great brand and they sell a lot, which would be contradictory to the, to me saying that they have a terrible product because that you would think, Oh, well, if they sell a lot, they must have a great product. So you kind of get to the, to the point of, well, is the product, the business or is the business, the business, or is the brand, the business. And again, the issue is that no one thinks about that. I don't think people think about that. And, and that's a real shame. Um, I think apprentices contribute can contribute so much more than they're offering. I think in the past, um, I've just spoken with some tailors, and the the image that I get of the past is that people did invest in in their apprentices a little bit more back in the day. Um, I was talking, like I was saying earlier, how I was talking to Chris Despis, the American tailor he told me his story and I got to listen to how he was trained and he moved to New York at one point and and apprenticed under two tailors who had a ton of work there. And it was incredible. I I was kind of left speechless when he was telling me this because he said, yeah, I went there. Um, This is after having worked with his father for two years. So he, he knew how to, sew. he worked in like an alterations tailor shop. And um, so he went there and they hired him um, they taught him pattern making from the start. Their uh, their pattern maker taught him pattern making. They, he was always working on something. They he told me that they didn't push him, they didn't rush him. They were really focusing on the technique. And I was left speechless. I don't. I think he didn't necessarily see that as a huge point of interest. But I th- listened to that mm-hmm. and I thought, 
What? You you went to a huge tailor shop and they they just were accommodating for you, and, and it just kind of took me off guard. And and so then I gave him or I um, asked him a follow up question. Well, you know, did you guys have a lot of work? Because a lot of times, um, you know, it could be oh well, we don't have a lot of work, so now we'll just show you how to do something because we have nothing else to do, uh, which has happened to me. And mm-hmm. he's like, no, we were always really busy. So the point of that whole story and that experience is that he was invested in, you know, he, he did work for them and, and he was, what he was doing actually was making display jackets. So he would work on the jackets and they would end mm-hmm. up being, not on a, they wouldn't end up being on a customer, but they would be on a mannequin or a show customer. This is, you know, our, um, our smoking jacket or this is our three button and this is our standard lapel and breast and all that stuff. And, and, and it was just incredible. I, I thought that was, I thought that was so interesting and I was a little bit, and I, like I said, I was left speechless a little bit, um, had to edit that out in the podcast so it doesn't sound like I left, I was left speechless, <laughs> but, um, but I just was because I, I haven't heard of anybody of an apprentice who's been invested in who hasn't had family ties to the business. Uh, Mm -hmm. The people who become tailors today, uh, not for the large part, but, you know, a good quantity of tailors, younger tailors, have the good fortune of being the son or daughter, primarily son, of somebody who owned a tailor shop. And so Mm -hmm. so that person gives them everything. You know, they're... They want their son to learn. They want that person to succeed. They they want them to do it as quick as possible. They want them to take over. They want them to be in the business. And that sort of desire and um, passion for learning and, and progress is not applied, I think, equally to other people in the business or other apprentices. Why do you learn. think? Why do you think that apprenticeships um, or apprentices? Um, are treated in a way as if they it's as if they are expected to be replaced or to leave um, at some point during their career Uh, and so most of the time I mean if they are trained um, it's it usually it doesn't happen in a very specific um, sequence for everyone it's like If you if you talk to like five apprentices in the same company, it seems that they all have a different story. Whereas it's the same company, but if you do if you go to like let's say a, a, a certain business, and you have five people from the same position, most of the time their mentors was the same person, or the the pro the the program they went through was the same, the training was the same, and uh, the job they had to do in the first two three years maybe was most of the time the same as well. Why do you think that within tailoring specifically, um, apprenticeships are such a weird thing? It's like, not only is, the, is it inconsistent in, in terms of training, but it's also inconsistent in terms of commitment uh, because, yeah, maybe the owner commits more to his son or daughter who is, uh, you know, working in the business uh, and less to someone else, um, whereas they could, you know, be invested in equally and... Uh, perhaps develop the company together. What, what are the things that you have noticed talking to many people and having your own experiences as well? Um, I, 
I think with with tailoring, it's primarily small businesses, which means you have, for lack of a better word, an incompetence in how businesses are managed. Um, I, I shouldn't say for lack of a better better term. There's a bit of the people who are running the businesses are, are a bit novice when it comes to running businesses. And I'm sure I sound quite pompous saying that here, not having run a business, but they are not necessarily businessmen, but yet the people who are the most successful, the, the tailor shops that are most successful are business oriented people. The people who realize the value in having a marketing plan, having an advertising plan, providing a full customer experience. Those are the people who have the most success. And with that comes a certain amount of standardization that's not in the smaller shop. So so in general, I think it's something that's a little bit inherent to small business, not necessarily just tailoring, where it's it's a small place, so you have small numbers, small orders. If you go anywhere and, and you know, a thousand orders for a small tailor shop is like incredible like that's an incredible uh, making a thousand suits a year by hand in a, a family-owned business tailor shop i mean those are incredible numbers but it's only a thousand you know a factory can make a thousand suits in a day and yeah they're not the same quality but still they can make a thousand suits a day so there's more standardization that you would find um in a factory or or in a place that has bigger numbers um i'm not sure if i'm exactly going at, at your question or your point there but i think with learning there's so much difficulty with learning because there's no standard standardization Mm -hmm. um and on top of that lack of standardization there's not a conscious effort to make the difficulty of, of learning tailoring better i think it's one thing to say being a tailor, like if you're if you own a tailor shop and you're talking to an apprentice, it's, I think it's one thing to say, look, this is going to be really difficult. A lot of people don't make it through the first year, two years, even three years of of an apprenticeship or or working here. This is going to be really difficult. We're going to do our best to support you and give you the the materials and resources that you need to succeed. Um, and we expect you to do mm-hmm. the same. You know, to give us your hundred and ten percent. Um, yeah. And then that, you know, that would require a follow up with where does that lead me? You know, it's like, I'm going to give my 110% so that what? Okay. Well, you know, well, you'll have more responsibility. You'll be in charge of this. You'll be able to, you know, their monetary incentives, responsibility incentives. You know, some people just want to manage other people. They, they want to have more responsibility. Um, so you need that. I mean, and I, I'm kind of losing myself here because there's so many different things to talk about. But well, it looks as if quantity plays a big role. Would you What's say that? that quantity plays a big role? Because I think it's very interesting what you say. You know, we, we started off as in why are is the training program of apprenticeships so inconsistent, both in in how they the, the training they receive, but also the commitment they get. And then you say something like, well, one of the problems that 
we have is that most state room companies are small businesses. Uh, if, if, if I think they're just small workshops, I don't even see them as yeah. small businesses, right? And then because they are small, they don't attract that big of a clientele. And so because they don't have to make like thousand suits a, a day, let's say for exaggeration's sake, they never get to the point that they desperately feel the need to standardize anything. And as soon as you don't need to standardize anything, what you'll get is everything goes into someone's head. And because they can handle maybe the entire business or the entire workshops order for the year with like two or three, maybe four people, they don't really feel the need to develop a training program. Now, what I'd like to know is, and, and this is the big question then for me in this line of thinking, where does this cycle, wh where is the potential correction point for this cycle? Uh, would, would it be the case that if we had a bigger marketing strategy as a, an industry, which would create, um, let's say, which, which would bring potentially a bigger clientele for yeah. all levels of tailoring companies, would that start to slowly get into the direction of, you know, dealing with the quantity issue and then scaling the businesses or at least have them act out themselves as a big business? Or is it not, is it the decision that the tailors have to make? Uh, where would you see that potential improvement in the cycle? So I see that as sort of a chicken and the egg argument. And I've had... Exactly, uh, yes. I've spoken to some people about this before. It's kind of like, well, what's going to come first? What's going to be the pattern interrupt that changes things? Um, I don't think there needs to be a pattern interrupt. I think people, I think if individuals are conscious of what they're doing um, and open to change, I think that those things will take care of themselves because that's kind of what the market wants. You know, the made-to-measure industry has been growing do you mean the individuals who own the workshops or the clients who are the individuals? The, I mean on the production side, the production right. and, and business and marketing side. And it, it'll, it'll obviously be a quicker change if you have people who have more responsibility changing. You know, we're having this conversation here and there are people who own tailor shops with 20 employees, 50 employees, or there are larger mm -hmm. tailor shops that have even more. You know, if, if they make a change, obviously it's going to have a bigger impact more quickly. Um, but it's really, I think, about being open to change and open to new possibilities. I mean, I, I think, like I was saying, the made-to-measure industry has been growing rapidly for years and still is, and that's because the market values it. Clients value that industry, and there's economies of scale so obviously it's it's a a more lucrative business model um that being said with tailoring being a less lucrative business model and less numbers and less quantity and less output and all that sort of stuff you can still have the mindset without having the numbers and i think that's going to produce a better business in the short term but primarily in the long term do you think uh, that if, if uh, made-to-measure, sorry, um, it, do you think that if made-to-measure companies uh, wouldn't have a lower price level, therefore not attract a larger clientele, 
Um, do you think that they would still be as well developed as they are today? No, I mean that's pretty. I think it's a pretty straightforward question. No, the part of the business is advertising and marketing, and if you don't do advertising and marketing, you're going to have less output. That's kind of just the fact of the matter. You can't just do everything on organic growth of whether the customer likes it or not. Um, and that's mm-hmm. also that ties into to the smaller uh, workshop, as you call them, because mm-hmm. they don't necessarily see the value in marketing or advertising or social media. And some do, obviously. Um, but I think it's more of a, I think the people that, I think you can tell whether or not a tailor shop's values are uh, corresponding with their social media or not, or their marketing or their advertising. I think it's pretty easy to tell, and it's pretty easy to tell whether or not, it, I think people, <laughs> tailors think, Clients are stupider than they are uh, because they don't know the technical thing. But at the end of the day, the client's making the decision. So if they don't trust you and they don't believe in what you're offering to them, they're not gonna they're not gonna part with their hard earned money. Um, so kind of back to the made to measure thing. I think there's so much growth in made to measure, partially because of marketing and, and advertising and, mm-hmm. and, and the business side. You know that's been integrated into the business, and also because they provide a very good end product. And I think Taylor's refusing to say that Made to Measure is good or that it's comparable to Bespoke or anything, or 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 not even you know more than anything, it's not being willing to recognize the threat of Made to Measure because if you take a short term mindset, which I firmly believe many tailor shops have a short-term mindset and the made to measure industry is well on its way i mean it's not it's not like oh the made to measure industry is on the rise it's been it's already risen um so if you don't think that's a, a threat to your business i think you're completely lying to yourself and i think that's a big issue and, and taylor it would uh, behoove taylors to talk about that <laughs> you know if i can if i'm a and I'm thinking also about the American client as well because I've had some contact with people and I also worked in a made-to-measure shop with American clients. People care about the experience. The product's great, but people also care about the experience. They care about things like if you say that it's going to be done in six weeks, that it's done in six weeks. Um, if you say it's going to be done in six weeks and they pick it up and then they have to come back and get a sleeve lengthened or shortened or there's something a little bit, there's some stitching that's been uh, missed in the inside of the suit that ties into the whole experience. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something else I was going to say, but I've, I've forgotten it. So, No, that, that, that's, that's fine. So, so the, the other thing that, that you mentioned also is that I'm, I'm going a few steps back, but, but that's fine. We can go back and forth, right? So one of the things that I wanted to talk about regarding apprenticeships was that you said something about it's as if tailoring companies or, or tailoring schools, maybe even perhaps, they're not selling the, they don't, they're not making it attractive for, for someone to be like, you know, um, hey man, you want to learn this? This is going to take you like five years, three years, two years. You're going to have to sit like yeah. for eight hours a day and sewing. 
and that's not really attractive for for many people um especially when 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 they are starting to talk about like oh look at this beautiful thing has 100 stitches in this place and 100 stitches in that place um why do you think that is do you think that that's like uh well do people say that because that's how they learned and it was romantic to them one day and now they think that that works for everyone and so they they try to seduce maybe potential apprentices with the same selling phrases or do you think that um maybe sometimes people even say it to to not have apprentices to be like man this is so difficult you better not even not even start what what do you think uh uh what are your thoughts around that well you mentioned a couple of things there so on the last note some tailors tell people to not be tailors um they'll flat out tell you just don't do it and they'll have spent their whole life tailoring, being a tailor. Uh, a lot of the people, a lot of the older generation, ported, like maybe in, this, in like I was saying earlier about the, the people that I initially worked with in their 60s and 70s, early 70s, they work so that their kids don't have to be tailors. Um, the people who are getting into tailoring today want to be in tailoring. You don't have to hammer into their head all this stuff about passion because the people who come out of a high school or a secondary school are far more intelligent and well-educated than any, any tailor who started anything ever. Um, and they have just coming out of, you know, a secondary school have far more opportunities than any tailor ever had. Tailors back in the day didn't become tailors just because it, they were so happy to be a tailor They're I've talked to multiple tailors and it's been the same multiple tailors who are older and who are very well accomplished. And a lot of the time it has nothing to do with them thinking, Oh wow, how cool is tailoring, you know, owning your own shop and, um, you know, creating these beautiful pieces of sculpture in, in cloth, you know, they, they didn't really have those thoughts. Um, initially, a lot of times it was, I didn't really know what to do. My father was a tailor. So, after I finished school, I just worked in the tailor shop and I liked it better than going to school. Um, and so that's what I did. And it's crazy how many people actually have said that to me. They said, you know, I've, I, they just did it to get out of going to school. Mm-hmm. And then they've wrestled with it. They wrestled with being a tailor for multiple, multiple years because it was so terrible. And then they just stuck with it. And that's kind of brings me to the point of what I was talking about earlier with pivoting where usually when you get to a point where you think this is pretty terrible, I need to make a change. You can pivot and, and do something and stay within the industry and tailoring. It's almost, you can't do that. You know, I don't, or at least I don't know how, at least um, you either are in the industry and you basically have to force yourself to just suffer through bad periods of time in in the industry, maybe in, in a certain job that you don't like, or, um, or maybe you own a tailor shop and you're not getting the clients that you had before or the, the amount of orders. You just have to put yourself through that. And I, and I just don't really agree with that on a personal note or on a philosophical, um, side, you know, I just, I don't think that just toughing it out for toughing it out 
or toughing it out because of passion or something is necessarily worth it. And that's honestly what many people have told me in the past is they're like, you know, stick with it. They'll say something like that or, or when when things get hard, you know, stick with it, stay in it. Um, you know, we all kind of go through this. I'm thinking that doesn't, you know, that didn't happen before. People 50 years ago weren't saying stick with it. It's, you know, you'll get through it. It was just what it was because it wasn't necessarily a passion. They did it because they were making money and because they were providing value to somebody and they were able to, they were providing value both to the client who they were serving as a coat maker, or as owning a business maybe even, and they were providing value to their family, to their children and to their wives or husbands if, if, um, if, they, if it was a street seamstress or something. They were providing value to people. And so now we, there's a, a large change in the people that are actually interested in tailoring, and there's a ton of people interested in tailoring. Uh, and the, the industry, or lack thereof, the group of people in the tailoring industry are not prepared to deal with the interest in tailoring, uh, and they don't really know how to train people. Um, and they, they're they kind of floundering. There's no real direction in the industry. If you look at any other industry you might, and like made to measure, you know, there's all these different technologies of how we're going to improve the fit of the garment. And that's also um, tempered with, well, how are we going to make it affordable to make because we have to, you know, keep our costs down. None of that really goes into tailoring. And I like thinking about the E-Myth, which I've talked to you about before. Um mm -hmm the book, The E-Myth, which is working on the business, not in the business. And if you know how to do everything, you will do everything. So if you're the tailor and you own the shop and a pair of pants needs hem, but you're the cutter, you're going to end up doing it. And you're not going to think about how you can pay somebody to do that and grow your business mm -hmm. as a business. You're going to think about how you can make it work. And that's not right. necessarily the path to growth as as an establishment and as an industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I vividly remember during my apprenticeship how often I heard that, you know, stop, quit. Why have you chosen tailoring? You know, you're going to end up either as a, a dull coat maker or you're going to... Basically, the, the most positive thing that I heard, and this is, I'm not exaggerating at all, the most positive thing I heard from my peers people who were roughly the same age as me, was that the highest achievement that you can have within tailoring is to have a shop with your name on it. And I thought that was probably the most, um, to some point, true, but also absurd thing I've ever, uh, I'd ever heard. And I guess what, you know, this, this comes back to also one of the reasons I, I, I assume someone may think like that is that there are few there there aren't many options like you say you know when you when you're trying to think of okay this is not working out let me stay within the industry do something else what is there to do there seems to be very little uh, room for maneuvering and well you can you can either become a finisher a cutter maybe front of house do something in made to measure you can become a digital pattern cutter for maybe like a ready to wear company you can become a whatever any anything 
there, there are limited, um, there, there's a limited amount of positions that one can choose if one thing doesn't work out. But then at the same time, you also have a very small industry which, uh, where the dynamics aren't, you know, it's not a very volatile industry in terms of dynamics. Now, maybe part of that we could say, I could think of, is if we say uh, a large number of people from previous generations chose tailoring because they had to. They're, they had to feed their family. They, there were X amount of jobs available. They, they happened to choose tailoring. Do you think that now having a bigger wave of younger people, or people from a younger generation who are very passionate about tailoring, will bring a change in the sense that they will not just treat it as a job or, well, this was my only option, but something like, you know, I'd like to have a vision for this. I'd like to carve out something for myself. I'd like to maybe do something that hasn't been done before. Also, us being in contact with the rest of the world a lot more efficient than our previous generations because of the technological advancements that we had. Um, would you say that it's a, it's a generation thing or is it like a... Is it like a human nature thing? And are we kind of, and is our generation also doomed to repeat the same mistakes maybe? Uh, what would you say that is? I don't know if we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes. I don't think it's that, you know, uh, intense. I do think there are people who are young people who are making changes in the industry. Um, those changes aren't necessarily though in the actual product which again takes me back to the product's super important but at the same time it's your business and it's, and it's your brand that are going to decide the success of, of you and of your brand mm -hmm. uh, what aspects of a brand which do you i believe think are, are the most the important yeah tell us a bit more about that what what so what are the separate things and also what aspects do you think will make the biggest impact what are the separate things of what? Sorry, I'm not. Mm. So the brand and uh, having the brand and the product, right? And yes. What what no elements do you think? Yes. Um. I think it's how you it's the brand and the business is is are the other facets. You can obviously go into more detail with those things, um, but I think that's where all of the innovation in handmade tailoring can pretty much be uh, the suit has remained unchanged for a really long time now um, i don't think it's going i personally don't think it's going to really change anytime soon um, so how you run your business how you manage and lead the people in your business is really what's going to set you apart from other people so when you talk about, or, or when we talk about um, customer management, for example, there are certain places, um, for example, there's one in New York, which is Michael Andrews Bespoke. And they do, they make their product in China, which I think is really interesting. Um, and they have, a, they have a tailor shop in China. So it's not that they're sending their stuff to some industrial place and industrial factory in China and having it made for them. And they don't really know necessarily what they're going to get back or they don't have control. They own a tailor shop, handmade tailor shop in China that does all their tailoring for them. 
and that provides an extreme value to the customer for what they're getting uh, or for I'm sorry for what they're paying then on top of that you have things like um, CRM's customer uh, what is that customer relationship management um, and there's so much that you can do with that if you think I mean you could do so many cool and interesting things with how you interact with your customers you uh, a shop could design an application or portal for their customers to interact with the business directly a private application where they could directly interact with the people make appointments which some people do you know it's not like it's not like i'm saying everything it's not like everything i'm saying hasn't been done um but it hasn't really been done all together in the same place um and the places that are having success are are doing those things you know, they're improving their relationships with their customers who are changing how they have relationships. They're not saying, okay, we just have to call our customers if we want to talk to them like we did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. We're going to adapt to the changing social environment to interact with our customers on a different, in a different way that is still interacting with our customers. You know, if I talk to a customer of mine that's on Instagram, it doesn't really matter that it's on Instagram. That's a way of interacting that is becoming part of the social fabric. So I don't understand the re- any resistance to doing something like that. Um, so I, I really think those different, you said like what are the categories, I think kind of, they're all in business and how you run, manage the people, um, lead the people and create culture in that business because that culture is going to be felt by the people working for you and the, that's going to be in turn felt by your clients and at the end of the day if the clients view that as valuable you're going to have a successful mm-hmm. business um so i really think that's where all the m- the majority of the innovation is in handmade tailoring is on the business side yeah the majority of the, it seems the to me side. that it seems to me that personal development and personal growth uh, plays a very important part in being able to create a, a, ta- a bespoke tailoring business with handmade products um, in order to be able to to do anything I mean you could you could probably you see the, the, so here's the interesting part for me most of the time when when you look at a business um you know they offer a product whatever let's say let's say let's take ready to wear right they the business is more or less about the business right can we develop this product within this you know financial frame within this time frame um have a few basic services i'm I'm, I'm, this is a very business uh, basic uh, business concept i'm talking about right and the main business is about the business. Can we deliver this to this demographic or the, this particular clientele? When you are dealing with a uh, workshop where people are working and making, uh, you know, handcrafted products, it seems to me that it becomes very difficult to have all of the focus on, like you, like we're talking about, like only on the product. So. The service is going to be very important. You know, the client interaction and management is going to be very important. But also, it seems that the route to personal growth behind the back, you know, in the, in the back of the workshop with the people who are making things, 
is equally important uh, because you, it's, it's, it, what is different, why should I want to work with this tailoring company if I'm just going to be like another worker, like you, you mentioned earlier, right? What, what do you think is, is the role of personal growth within a tailoring company or a tailoring business, let's say, apart from the fact that it should be a business and run as a business, etc.? I think it depends on what the business, the, the owners of the business want. What are the what guiding values do they use to make decisions? A lot of th- a lot of the times, people don't have those values in the first place. Um, because it really depends. It, it really depends on what you're trying to achieve, and also, it's difficult to compare somebody from London who's going to work in a tailor shop to somebody in China or somewhere in Asia and in some another factory who's going to work in a tailor shop. Because if the goal, it really depends what you want from the business. If the goal of the business is to produce a high quality garment for a client that has, that's of the profile that they're not really necessarily complete connoisseurs of bespoke tailoring then you take one path. And so obviously that per- the personal development is important for the people that are working for you, but it depends the specific people working for you. It's going to depend on which direction you're going to take. And then that will also kind of, that'll dictate what type of personal improvement they can have. So, so will we like, I could use the Michael Andrews bespoke example in New York. So the majority of their, tailors i actually don't even know if they have a quote-unquote real tailor in new york all those tailors are in china so what is personal improvement for them well they're working in a tailor shop so they need to figure out they need to be coached by the people who manage them who should probably display some sort of leadership capabilities you know not necessarily just the person who has the most experience um what what goals they have in, in so many businesses and especially in sales i love I think, I think companies that are based on sales are pretty entertaining because you can just tell they're based on sales and the rah-rah attitude and the sort of build your business build your client book sort of uh, mentality I, you can just tell from a mile away but there is some sort of truth in there and obviously it works otherwise businesses wouldn't be doing it um or at least the certain core principles work so part of that is having goals setting goals um reaching those goals and then setting new goals so if we're talking about personal improvement for people in a tailor shop like you're saying back of house pretty much what are the goals for those people well okay so let's talk about the apprentice well maybe for that apprentice it's learning how to do uh, first fitting Maybe for the apprentice, it's learning how to do a second fitting if they're at a different stage. Or maybe for the apprentice, it's learning how to put on a collar or put it on sleeves. Um, then maybe for a coat maker, it's certain things like, how can I set this sleeve perfectly? What What's going to be my process to get a perfectly set sleeve every time? So th- then it becomes much more complex and much more difficult, and that goal might be a goal that is that you come back to, you know, month after month or year after year, because you might want to change and tweak that system. Um, and then you might get to somebody like 
the person who's cutting um, or managing the tailor shop and you say, okay, well, what can their personal improvement goal be? Well, it could be something like, how am I going to help these people achieve their goals? Hmm. You know, because you, in theory, should be competent enough to fulfill your duties um, and more than fulfill your uh, technical work and duties, you need to fulfill that of the leader and managing people and make sure that those people are achieving their goals. Um, obviously, it would be good to have a technical goal for that person too because there's a lot that goes into cutting, the the technical side of cutting, obviously, um, that doesn't get looked into. Uh, but I think that's sort of the route that I would go down. And then to make that a priority, if that's not a priority of the business, if the priority of the business isn't to grow the people inside the business into competent uh, employees and employees that move up and want to stay in the company and that want to come up with new ideas and help the company grow, um, it's not going to happen. Those people are going to leave and they're going to, they're going to go somewhere else. They're going to start their own tailor shop, which is exactly what the person who hired them didn't want them to do, I'm sure. Um, and if that's what that person wants to do, then you can let them go. But you know, you have to know what you're really setting out to do when you open up a tailor shop. And you have to come back to that every time you make it uh, an important decision. And so with personal mm -hmm. personal improvement, you have to make it a priority. Um, and you have to live it. You have to do it. You can't just say it's a priority and then not really do it. Um, yeah. It takes um, a lot of dedication. What would you say? Well, you know, obviously, uh, from time to time, you know, tailors who work in a bigger company uh, leave. They set up... Uh, either their own company or they start to work as freelance tailors. Maybe they have two or three clients um, that they work with. You know, they keep it small. They keep it to themselves. They're just like a one-man band, basically. Um, how do you think those things impact our industry? Like, uh, obviously, it's good to have free freelancers who... Because uh, I have to make a distinction. So you have freelancers who don't see clients they work for other companies they as freelance code makers freelance trouser makers whatsoever but you also have people freelancers maybe uh, who have their own clients as well so they're essentially like a one one person workshop who has maybe four or five clients per year maybe even 10 uh, how do you think that impacts the dynamics within the industry uh, is it good to have a lot of them? Is it, uh, you know, is it going to do, um, is it threatening for the bigger companies? How, how do you look at that? Well, I think it's actually pretty cool. I think being a freelance tailor sounds like a, a cool gig. You know, you make, make your own hours in theory, have your own clients, do your own thing, which is great because that's all tailors pretty much ever want to do is do what they want to do. Um, I think there's not really been a ton of freelance tailoring done in the past as we might think of it today. Um, there have been people who've worked, they'll might call it like work from home or something. Um, and so they'll just take their work home and work from home. And that's one thing. But the freelance tailor is more like, I'm starting my own business. I am my business. So I have to build my brand. And um, there are people who do that. And I'm honestly a little bit jealous of them. I feel like they have a good gig going. Nobody can criticize their work and tell them what to do. Um, but 
then you think about, well, how is that helping or hurting the industry? Um, it gives coat makers a lot more say, I think. Um, you can't have necessarily a cutter who's like, oh, I just need somebody to make up this this coat for me, and then you find somebody cheap, and then they'll do it. The coat maker has a little bit more say in that, I think, than previously. Um, and I'm kind of speaking more about in the, the London area, because that's sort of what I've understood and in, in all the people that I've talked to is is what's going on. You know, there's a lot of freelance tailors in London, a lot of people just kind of working from home. Um, and there have been some people, I remember I spoke with uh, a wonderful woman on the phone, and she's been doing it for like 40 years. She just lives outside of London, drives into Savile Row, picks up her work, drives home, and works. Um, so short term, um, short term, depending on what the rates are, you know, it could be that it's more expensive, the per item cost for the business, um, than to have a salaried worker, but it's unlikely because if you have a salaried worker, you're probably going to be paying benefits and, and other things if you're doing things legally, like many businesses don't. Um, and so it's probably going to be a little bit less cost prohibitive to do that, uh, which is a good thing in the short term for the tailoring houses. Uh, not necessarily the best thing in the long term because that intellectual property is not staying in-house. So what happens is, and now the more that I'm thinking about it, it's happened for a while, but, you know, people who are working from home, um, who now we might call them freelance tailors, they are, they can be really good. So you might have one tailor who's just an incredible coat maker, and, but he works from home. Or maybe they've reached a certain age and they're just like, I just want to work alone. I just want to make coats. So you'll have, they'll have a steady supply of coats because they're a good coat maker. But all that intellectual property stays at home, so it's not contributing to an overall, a bigger cause. So what happens is that person basically just makes coats. They could be a brilliant coat maker. Um, but that knowledge is just going to be what it is. You know, it's not going to contribute to the growth of a larger cause or of uh, of a brand, a larger brand or anything. It's not going to live on with other people. Um, except, obviously, those maybe, you know, the person has at one point presumably was working in a tailor shop so presumably they their personality and their technical ability has rubbed off on somebody um but what happens what happens is they those people pass on they die and then you have the classic case the classic scenario of a cutter who's like there's just no good coat makers anymore and you wonder wow how could i have incorporated that person into my business to keep that intellectual property in house so that we could continue producing that same quality of garment for our mm -hmm. client. Now we're kind of in shambles trying to figure out how to, how to come through for our clients. Um, and I think now there is that opportunity with young people. I think there's an opportunity for people who own businesses to take advantage of, of young people and not in a negative sense. I mean, take advantage of, growing those people into part of the business and growing their potential uh in technical ability into the business i think i think that's possible because the younger generations i think are part of a generation that overall want that i think they overall want to be part of something 
bigger. They're a little bit more social than Taylor's have been in the past. Obviously, with Instagram and um, Facebook and social media in general, there's more um, desire to be to do something and a desire to be a part of something. Um, and so, there's an opportunity for people who own tailor shops to to capitalize on that and say, look. This person has a lot of potential. How can we grow them into part of our business, grow their their uh, abilities, and uh, and take advantage of that? Yeah. Uh, what role do you think apprentices can play in partially? I mean, I, I won't say you know they they there 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 you know we have a lot of good things going on in our industry there are a lot of new opportunities there are some shady things going on here and there which kind of like are working very counter um constructive towards the learning process but also uh not really in the benefit of the client but suppose you know for for maybe apprentices listening to this or people who are thinking about going into tailoring and perhaps becoming an apprentice what are the things that they potentially could do or say um, to improve their their learning experience, um, to improve the environment they are in, and and make sure that whatever they are learning um, is not wasted and is not kind of like um, what do you mean does not wasted? turn into a de- well you know I I could perfectly see like someone trying to do tailoring. And uh, being very talented and then going into the wrong tailoring workshop uh, because they may not have a lot of options. And then, you know, getting a very bad image of tailoring and what an apprenticeship is. And, you know, of course, you can always make the argument, well, if they are going to quit so quickly, then they probably don't deserve it. But there is also this other side that, yeah, well, you know, if even the most passionate can sometimes be treated so badly or, or really be so disappointed that they just think, look, man, um, this is not really up to my intellectual level. It's, it's just below anything that I've ever seen. Um, the people who I'm working with maybe are not the best people, you know, socially or intellectually, whatever, or even, you know, in terms of skills, um, I don't think I'm going to do tailoring. Whereas if they did kind of like have a good environment, they could have become, you know, one of the best, um, perhaps even most influential tailors of all time. Uh, what do you think they could do, the apprentices, uh, to in, improve the, the in, their part in the industry? Um, I think one thing could be to not jump on the criticism train. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, what I mean by that is as things have grown in the past maybe 10 or 15 years in terms of online content like Style Forum and um, Permanent Style, Ask Andy and that sort of stuff, as those things have gone on, they've become more about pointing out what's wrong mm-hmm. and less about learning uh, or understanding or encouraging other people. And so you've gotten into this sort of like Oh well, that's um, a suit from Akaracheni in from Milan. Oh wow, I can't believe that they did X, Y, and Z. And you just don't have the perspective 
to know what's going on in the situation. There's so many variables when you talk about uh, when you just see a photo of a guy wearing a suit and it, and you just know that it's from a famous tailor shop. There's so many things going on that it that could be going on. Um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't even judge fit photos. They wouldn't judge fit of a suit from photos. They have to see it in person. Or they have to see a video or they really have to like look and, you know, it takes a while to understand what's going on virtually. So I think that the readiness to be negative and to find what's wrong is not the way to go. I just think that's not the way to go. And that's not necessarily that's negative. Negativity isn't like a new thing. So there are old tailors I know who talk about um, they can just see everything that's wrong in a suit. They look at a suit and they know everything that's wrong. And I don't even know what I would respond to that. You know, I, in the past, somebody, people have said that to me and I've thought, okay, like, I, I'm just not really sure how, how to respond to you. I'm, you know, can we talk about how to fix those things or, um, you know, come up with new procedures to make sure that it's not like that? Or can we have a difficult conversation with the older tailor who's 65 or something, but doesn't press the garment how you want it to be pressed? Like, can we do that to, to make, the garment a little bit better um so those conversations mm-hmm. don't necessarily happen but all that to say that negativity isn't necessarily new that's i'm not revealing anything special there but as the negativity online and between young people um i think has grown and i think it's unfortunate and i think now people are more conscious of what they post they 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 have to portray it like it's something that it isn't. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel I feel that pressure too, where it's like, oh, wow, this is a bad photo of this jacket. It doesn't, doesn't really do it justice. And I don't want to post it because it's, a, first of all, because it's a bad piece of content. Obviously, if it doesn't display what I'm trying to show, it's not, I, it's not a good piece of content. But then on top of that, there's the social dilemma of uh, people are going to, think negatively or this is going to kind of define part of who I am in my portfolio or Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to maybe even I'm trying to make it seem like I'm better than I am and I I, and so those are the sort of overarching themes not only in tailoring but also with young people dealing with social media social media is a relatively new thing Um, it's been around for a long time but in terms of young people and how it affects what we do and our psychology um, is important and it's impactful. And I think we need to be conscious of what we're doing and why we're, why we're posting what we're posting and why we're asking questions or commenting what we are, because if it's Mm -hmm. just to say it or to not really provide anything to the conversation, don't post it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, or or don't comment it. You know, I've had even people will say they'll they'll make comments, or they'll send me a direct message about something, like, "Oh, you do, uh, I didn't do what? What was the one that I received? Um, <laughs> oh, it was it was something like, "Oh, you didn't do all of the canvas by hand," and the reason the reason that I didn't was because the tailor shop that I was working in 
and in various tailor shops, it's not a new thing in Italy. Um, they'll pad like the chest by machine. And so he's like, Oh, you didn't pad the chest by machine. And that was all he wrote. It's like, and I'm thinking what, I'm not really sure what your point in commenting that was. You know, it's not, not really a comprehensive comment to begin with. And I don't understand how that contributes to anything. You could comment. That's interesting how you patted the chest by machine. Is there a reason that you did that as instead of doing it by hand? I mean, you could have a conversation, um, but people don't. So I, I, so the first thing I would suggest is seek to understand. Mm-hmm. Just seek to understand. Don't don't try to go into a question or a conversation trying to get a specific outcome out of it because it's not going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And then when dealing with tailors, I would say do what you can to help them understand that you're there to learn from them uh, and you believe in what they're doing. Because if they don't feel like that, they're not, they're not really going to want to teach you. Um, and it puts them at ease a little bit. You know, like they're not being judged by somebody. Uh, mm-hmm. Because some tailors are, <laughs> can be sensitive like that, even if somebody doesn't know anything. So, well, yeah, this so is a good point because... Yes. Yeah, it's a good point because, you know, uh, one of the things that I um, sometimes think about and if I think back to uh, what I sometimes notice is that um, sometimes apprentices are afraid of asking questions or asking questions after question, after question. So it's like, hey, you know, I'm going to show you something. Great. You do this, this, and this. And then they say, why? And then you give them a reason. And then they say, why again? And then you give them another reason. And then they say, why again? And then a lot of people just become, you know, they go, it pisses them off. They just like, you know, why stop, you know, questioning what I'm showing you and just do what I tell you to do. And, you know, from, from one perspective, I can understand why they may get pissed off because, you know, let's just not waste time. Get on with it. Just do what I tell you to do. Then we can maybe have a lengthy conversation about it once you know how to do it. But then from the other side, it's also like, man, you should be able to ask 200 why, you know, give, give answers to like 200 whys if you really want to teach someone, you know. And, and so it's like the question is like, where is the barrier of how how cheeky you could say or keen like overly uh, curious an apprentice can be without you know pissing the 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 master off and be like you know hey I, I don't have time for you and your questions it seems as if you're questioning me more than you're listening to uh, and the other thing you mentioned also uh, is like you know, don't don't start criticizing immediately if you do see something wrong. I genuinely think that you should probably, you know, you should, for every mistake that you see, you should probably also be able to see something good that you can learn from. You know, that's one of the things that I always uh, think about because, you know, I have been in environments where people were like just encouraged to just look at something and be like, ha, look at what they've done there. It's like, oh, it's a crap, isn't it? And then everybody like, yeah, 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 it's really crap. And it's like, yeah, man, we're not really learning anything, are we? So, so I, I agree with you uh, on that. Okay, uh, Matthew, I have a couple of things. 
I want to do a speed round. I have I have a couple of uh, words. Um, I love uh, speed uh, rounds. Yeah. So so let's let's see what the first words are that pop up in your mind. So let's start with the with the first one, which is apprenticeships. Difficult. Difficult. Right. Um, Italian tailoring. Do we want? Do you want one word answers, or is it, can it be like well, a phrase? Well. Or well, let's let's do this. I think I think it's good to say if you can if you can keep it short. If you say difficult, okay. I'm I'm curious to know why you say that. So, <laughs> in a in a nutshell, why difficult? Lack of. Uh materials and knowledge to be able to improve by yourself you mean as in like lack of resources to for you to just use while you're on your own to learn what you're trying to learn yeah i don't really think that somebody can just isolate themselves from the world and become a good tailor and i think and i personally resonate with that because i'm from the u.s and there's no tailors like you just mm. you there just aren't any tailors so you have to have contact with people who know what they're doing and who are willing to explain with you and take the time to go through it with you on your level so that you understand it um yeah i could go into a lot of reasons as to why it's difficult to do an apprenticeship just logistically even uh, if you think about the tailoring schools, I'm so I'm a little bit confused, you know. And, and I just released, I just put out an article uh, on artifacts about Italian tailoring schools. I'm a little confused as to what the the offer is with the tailoring schools. That being said, it seems like it's the only way to really get into a tailor shop because if you have no experience, no real no tailor really wants to take you. Even though you you know I've heard people say on Savile Row, you know, I prefer somebody who has no experience. No. I think that's a complete lie. You want somebody who ha- who's capable of doing more than you're willing to pay them is usually mm-hmm. what what that person wants. Um, I lost my train of thought a little bit there, but... Yeah, well, oh, what was I saying there, Reza? <laughs> you, were, you were saying that what the tailoring schools are offering seems to be the only the way out. Schools. Yeah. Yes. You. So with the, with the tailoring schools, it's it's just a curious sort of thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to go and pay. Uh, you know, some of them you end up paying, you know, thirty or forty thousand euros to get to do the full course out of pocket for something that isn't recognized by any institution in the world for anything. Um, you know, what value does that really provide to me? And also, you know, that speaks to who apprentices are today. Apprentices don't come from families that aren't necessarily able to afford that. You know, I can't, like, for example, the um, Antonio Liberano School in Florence now that just came out from Liberano and Liberano. I think it's 15,000 euros a year out of pocket for something that doesn't isn't really recognized by by anybody. So you really have to be persistent 
and almost know what you want to do because if if you go to that school it's or any school it's so specialized that unless there's a specific reason that you want to use it down the road it can you can end up shooting yourself in the foot because it's not really recognized by anybody um and so few jobs outside of that industry require that sort of knowledge you know if you go to let's say you go to that school and you spend that money and then you end up working like i have a friend who ended up working for gucci and doesn't really do just like sews on labels or something and you think you know did you really have to go to that school to get and and part of it is yes you did like they gucci wants somebody who has that sort of experience and 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 so on one hand you have the school that isn't recognized by anybody being recognized for some sort of experience. But at the same time, it's still not really recognized by anybody outside of that industry or outside of that country. Um, mm-hmm. So it, I still haven't figured out exactly what the 